Murder in the North, Episode 6, Murder at the Villa. On a grey November day in 1967, the doorbell rings at a modern villa in South Aarhus in Denmark. The lady of the house answers and lets a stranger in. Ten minutes later, the tastefully decorated home has turned into a crime scene, with one woman dead and one badly injured witness. For 50 long years, police, journalists and amateur detectives try to uncover the identity of this mysterious visitor, and above all, his motives. Why did he come to this address? Why did he kill? You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Vivian Isabella Lamholch-Peterson and Barbara Gearholf-Nilholm, and told by me, Jenna Sharp. On that Friday in November 1967, cleaner Irma Rasmussen has her work cut out for her. Her daughter's 18th birthday coincides with St. Martin's Eve, traditionally celebrated at the end of the harvest season. Both events will be celebrated in a big way in the Rasmussen household that evening. Irma wants to get as much done as she can before heading off to work. She takes the napkins from the cupboard, as well as the little flags that are traditionally part of a Danish birthday. She also gets as much as possible ready in the kitchen so that when she gets home late in the afternoon, she can start cooking dinner straight away. Then she hops on her bike. It's about two and a half miles from Frederiksbar in Aarhus to Hoiberg, a neighbourhood in the south of the city, where she works as a cleaner. Her employers are Mr and Mrs Locke Hansen, who live in a modern villa just over half a mile from Marcellusborg Palace, Queen Margrethe of Denmark's official summer residence. The windows need cleaning today. It's quite a big job, since the house has a double-height glass facade. What Irma doesn't know yet is that for her and the Lock Hansons, this Friday has something rather different installed to cleaning windows and celebrating St. Martin's Eve. The Lock Hansen's villa is at the end of a cul-de-sac, a modern house made of yellow brick and partially embedded in a hill. At the back, large panoramic windows overlook the garden. Beyond that garden is Marcellusburg Forest, where Mrs. Lock Hansen often walks the dog. Deep inside the woodland, hidden amongst the trees, lies something very few people know about. 
a secret system of bunkers built by the Navy. Marie Locke Hansen is 43 and an elegant woman. She's good-looking, slender, always fashionably dressed, and she wears her hair in the style of Jackie Kennedy. She plays bridge, collects antiques, and takes evening courses in French. And as a consummate hostess, she loves having people over for gatherings at her tastefully decorated designer villa. Her husband, Oscar Lockhansen, is 11 years older, an engineer and quite well off. They met 17 years ago when Marie began working as his secretary. But now that Oscar has sold the shares in his company, he lectures at Aarhus Technical College. The couple have lived in the villa for several years now. To begin with, Elizabeth, Oscar's daughter from a previous marriage, also lived with them. When Elizabeth leaves home, the couple suddenly have a lot of time on their hands, as well as a great deal of space in their big house. With Oscar's help, Marie sets up a publishing company for limited editions. They install a printing press down in the basement, which has enough room for a stencil duplicator and a sorting machine. Soon the business is doing so well that Marie has to hire someone to cope with the daily workload. She hires Lissy Christensen, a woman who lives locally. The villa is often a hive of activity. An endless stream of clients and suppliers turn up at the front door. But the last visitor to ring the bell on Friday the 10th of November, 1967, will be a deadly one. The kitchen table is full of dirty plates, glasses and cutlery, waiting for cleaning lady Irma Rasmussen to arrive. The Lock Hansons have had guests over. Daughter Elizabeth joined them for dinner, and later in the evening, printing press employee Lissy and her husband popped in for a drink. They'd just finished a big printing job and had dispatched it to the bookbinder, so they all had something to celebrate. During the course of the evening, Oscar welcomed some more people to their home. He'd promised two students that he'd help them with their exam on the topic of reinforced concrete. Oscar and the two young men retreated to the printing office with their notes, formulas, blueprints, and a bottle of whiskey. By the time Oscar and the two students had finally been through all the material for the exam, daughter Elizabeth and Lissy Christensen and her husband were long gone. It was four in the morning, but Marie had stayed up all this time. The gentleman had polished off a fair amount of whiskey. So when the two young engineers left, they were a bit unsteady on their feet. Marie and Oscar are up and about again around 8am on Friday morning. They don't have to leave the house until later, so they have time for a big breakfast. They leave their plates and cups on the kitchen table, next to the dirty dishes from the night before. Oscar is still at home when the cleaning lady rings the doorbell. Marie answers the door. She's wearing a light grey jumper and a striking green skirt. On this cloudy November day, everything seems to be business as usual 
at the house in Hoibar. Within the space of only a few hours, however, the villa will be a scene of a bloody drama. As part of their investigation, the police do everything they can to reconstruct the minutes prior to the arrival of the mysterious man with his murderous intentions. Irma Rasmussen gets started at once. As she makes her way from room to room in the big house, she can hear Marie Locke Hansen at work in the small printing office downstairs, answering the phone. The bookbinder is on the line, wanting to know if there's someone at home to take delivery of the books. It doesn't escape Irma's attention that at some point that morning, a courier drops off three boxes. Then she hears Marie Locke Hansen on the phone to accompany an Aarhus. The sorting machine is broken, and Marie is complaining that nobody has come to repair it when their work is piling up. Oscar Locke Hansen has to go into the post office to pay in the printing company's sales tax. Afterwards, he'll drive to the technical college in Aarhus to teach. He's already in his white Ford Mustang when Marie taps on the kitchen window. She wants to know when he'll be back, but Oscar can't really say. It's the last time that the two spouses will ever see each other again. At 20 to 10, the doorbell rings again. This time, it's someone from the laundry service. About half an hour later, at a quarter past ten, Marie's printing assistant, Lissy, is at the door. Marie is busy, so Irma lets her in. They exchange a few words before Lissy makes her way to the basement to help Marie. After Marie has tried a second time to get hold of someone to help with the faulty sorting machine, she comes into the kitchen to make coffee. She prepares a few sandwiches and sets up the table in the living room for a communal coffee break. Meanwhile, Lissy has started working downstairs. There's a lot to do, so she skips the break and thanks Marie for the coffee she's brought in. Lissy can hear Marie and Irma chatting and laughing in the living room upstairs. They're all busy, but there's always time for a chat in this house. Despite the problems with the sorting machine, Marie Locke Hansen is as cheerful and relaxed as ever. The doorbell rings again. Irma jumps up, but Marie tells her to sit back down. She'll answer it. She puts her napkin on the table and walks to the front door. It's now 10.48. Irma Rasmussen hears voices in the hallway. It's a man, a salesman or a sales rep perhaps, wanting to sell something to Marie. She doesn't catch what the man is saying, but she hears Marie inviting him in with the words, We're very busy, but if you keep it brief, I do have a minute. From where she is in the living room, Irma catches a glimpse of the man as Marie ushers him from the hallway to the office and then closes the door behind them. The visitor is wearing a blue coat and a hat. A few minutes later, she hears their voices again. Marie sounds agitated, as if something's not quite right. 
The stranger appears to be calming her down. There's no need to be afraid, Irma hears him say. Then suddenly, Marie screams, and a shot is fired, followed shortly after by a second, and then a third one. Downstairs in the basement, Lissy hears the three bangs too. She can't quite place the sound and walks towards the staircase. Was it the dog, perhaps? Irma is rooted to the spot in the living room. After a few seconds that feel like hours, she carefully ventures towards the hallway. And there, she finds herself face to face with the unknown man. He calmly looks her in the eye before he slowly raises his arm, aims his gun, and shoots. The bullet hits Irma in the groin and ultimately lodges itself in her left leg. The pain is so severe that she collapses. She rolls onto her stomach and covers her face with her hands. And that's where she stays, absolutely petrified. Don't move, the man says, as he bends over Irma. But when she hears him walk away from her, she can't help but briefly raise her head to watch him go. She sees the man recede like a shadow, leaving the front door open. When Irma is sure that he's gone, she shouts out to Lissy. Mrs. Christensen, call the police! Lissy Christensen runs out of the basement door, across the garden, towards the neighbours in an adjoining street. On the pavement, she passes a man in a long blue coat. The neighbour is just parking her car on the drive and can barely get out before a frantic Lissy starts explaining what has happened and telling her to phone the police. In the living room, meanwhile, Irma is in great pain, yet somehow manages to crawl to the patio to call for help. A gardener working in the garden next door hears her screams and rushes over to help. The injured woman on the patio is clearly terrified. She tells him that a man in a blue coat has shot at Marie Locke Hansen and that Marie is still inside. It has now been approximately eight minutes since the stranger turned up at the door. The gardener runs into the house and finds Marie Locke Hansen in her office. She's lying on the floor in a pool of blood. He rushes back to the house next door and tells the maid to call the police right now. Ten minutes later, at 11.08, a police car pulls up. Finding one dead and one injured woman at the scene, they call an ambulance. The paramedic realises that Irma Rasmussen's life is in acute danger. She needs emergency surgery and is rushed to Aarhus Hospital by ambulance. But to the police, Irma is not just a victim. She's also a potentially crucial witness in a murder case. The police urgently need to capture a witness statement from her in the event that she dies. A police car intercepts the ambulance en route to hospital 
and officers start interviewing Irma while she's lying on the stretcher. In shock and in agony, Irma Rasmussen tries to answer their questions as best she can. The interview with the badly injured woman lasts 12 minutes before her body gives out. Meanwhile, halfway through his lecture, Oscar Locke Hansen is taken out of the auditorium at the Technical College. He's escorted back to his house, which is now swarming with people. When he gets out of the car, he's met by an officer who breaks the terrible news to him. His wife has been shot. All efforts to resuscitate her failed. She's dead. The bullet hit her in the left chest, perforated her lung, grazed her heart, and pierced an artery. A bullet wound in her right arm suggests that she tried to shield herself when the perpetrator fired. As soon as Oscar hears the news, he bursts into tears before the eyes of the assembled crowd of police officers, journalists, press photographers, and concerned neighbours. The investigators start combing the villa and surrounding area for evidence. The forest and the nearby lakes are searched, and lots of people are questioned. In fact, during the course of the year, police carry out a total of 20,000 interviews. At the hospital, detectives try to obtain as much information as they can from the seriously injured and weakened Irma Rasmussen. They help her draw up a description. A male, aged between 35 and 40, slim, dark-haired that she remembers. He was wearing dark, horn-rimmed glasses, a dark blue coat, a hat, and he had a black folder under his arm. And then, of course, there was the pistol. Ballistic analysis reveals the murder weapon to be a Walter P-38. There are fears that the killer may try to silence the sole witness to the crime, so a police officer is stationed outside Irma's hospital room. After Irma is discharged from the hospital, officers regularly patrol outside her house as well. She even has an emergency call system installed in her home so she can call for assistance at any time. The detailed description of the perpetrator doesn't result in any additional leads. The investigative team now turn Marie Locke Hansen's whole life inside out in the hope of finding an explanation. Why would she, of all people, be the victim of a cold-blooded murder? Marie is 43 when she's killed. She and her husband live a life of luxury in their substantial villa in Hoibar. But Marie's life hasn't always been this privileged. She grew up one of six children in Lispiar, in the north of Aarhus. Her parents were poor. As a hired hand on a farm, her father had to work hard to provide for his big family. Marie was only 10 when her father died after a stroke. Right from an early age, 
Marie is determined to escape these wretched conditions. She's a hard-working schoolgirl, conscientious and ambitious. As soon as she turned 18, she moved to the city to start a job as a secretary in a factory. She continues to work throughout World War II and the Nazi occupation of Denmark. In the after hours, she often goes out dancing at Bellevue. It's at this restaurant that she meets Leif one evening. Leif may be training to be a painter, but he dreams of a career in music. The two fall in love and marry after the war in 1946. But the marriage doesn't go as planned. The fact that they can't have children really weighs on them. The doctor's diagnosis leaves little room for doubt. Marie's chances of conceiving are slim. And should she get pregnant, it's highly unlikely that the baby will survive beyond birth. Marie's desire to have children remains unfulfilled, but she's not prepared to give up on her other dreams. She's determined to climb the social ladder. Money and prestige are not that important to Leif. He just wants to make a living off his music. But Marie wants more from her life. They've been married for four years when Marie starts a new job. It changes everything. Her new position is with an engineering firm, where she'll be working directly for the boss, Oscar Lockhansen. At this point, he's in his late 30s, 11 years older than Marie, and married to Vera, with whom he shares two small children. Oscar and Marie fall in love. In 1952, Marie tells Leif that she wants a divorce. Oscar leaves his wife the following year, and late in the summer of 1953, he marries Marie. Following the divorce, Oscar's two children are separated. Daughter Elizabeth moves in with Oscar and Marie, while her younger brother, Steen, stays with his mother. Oscar isn't the boy's biological father, but he's always raised him as his own. And even though there's no more contact with Steen after the split, Oscar continues to pay spousal support to Vera and her son. Fifteen years have passed since the divorce. Elizabeth has grown up and left home. Oscar has sold his shares in the company and has moved to the suburb of Hoybar with Marie. A respectable, middle-aged couple that have built a beautiful life for themselves in every respect. He's a dedicated lecturer, popular with his students and active in local politics. And as someone who owns her own company, and who's very well connected, his wife has become a member of the establishment, just like she always wanted. So then why is it that the murderer turned up at their front door? The public is captivated by the murder. And meanwhile, the investigators are moving heaven and earth in their efforts to solve the case. Irma Rasmussen, the sole witness, is repeatedly called in to the police station to view piles and piles of photographs of potential perpetrators. It's hoped that eventually she'll recognize the murderer. 
On one occasion, she thinks she can actually see some similarities with the fugitive. The person in the photo in question is a lawyer from Hoybar, whose name popped up on a list of people who own a Walter P-38. When the police visit him, officers establish that he owns a blue coat, a hat, and a black ring binder. He's brought into the station for questioning, and his weapon is examined by forensic experts. They quickly rule out that the lawyer's firearm was used to murder Marie. Months pass. Years pass. But the police are unable to solve the case. Speculation is rife and wild theories are doing the rounds. Could it be that something from Marie Locke Hansen's past cost her her life? Did she get cosy with the Nazis during the occupation? And did it finally catch up with her after all these years? Or did she see or hear something that she shouldn't have seen or heard? Something to do with a Navy base in the forest, perhaps. Something so secret that she had to be silenced. Maybe she was a spy. Or perhaps it's all much simpler and she's actually the innocent victim of mistaken identity. One name keeps coming up. That of a woman known to have betrayed several resistance fighters during the war. She was the same age as Marie Locke Hansen, and both had short black hair. Is it possible that the perpetrator got the two women mixed up? Assisted by their colleagues in Copenhagen, the police follow up on every single tip and explore every single avenue. To rule out jealousy, one of the most common motives for murder, Marie's entire social circle is questioned again. The investigative team wants to be absolutely certain that they're not dealing with the fallout of a secret affair. But nothing is found that points in that direction. Irma Rasmussen, who heard Mrs. Locke Hansen greet the unknown visitor at the door, is convinced that Marie didn't know the man. Greed is another frequent motive for murder. Oscar Locke Hansen is a wealthy man, and it emerges that just a few days before Marie's death, the couple signed a postnuptial agreement and a will. Her solicitor had just dispatched the paperwork to have it notarized. The nuptial agreement would see Oscar's assets shared equally between him and Marie. Oscar has also named Marie as the sole beneficiary of his will, which means that after his death, his money and the villa would pass to her. Is it possible that the murder was motivated by Oscar's wealth and his estate? Because Marie died before the nuptial agreement and the will were made official, everything set out in them can be contested and declared null and void. For many years, one of the main suspects is the biological father of Oscar's stepson. He and Oscar's first wife 
would stand to profit from their child not being written out of the will. But there's no proof to support this theory, so it's never anything other than speculation, allegations and rumours. Who murdered Marie? Oscar Lockhansen never received an answer to that question. He died 15 years later in 1981. There's no statute of limitations on murder, but even after 50 years and 100,000 hours of investigation, the murder of Marie Lockhansen remains unsolved to this day. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes, and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. (laughs) 